Welcome to Trained, a podcast exploring the cutting edge of holistic fitness. I'm Ryan Flaherty, the Senior Director of Performance at Nike. Today, we've put together a very special episode. Special for you, I hope, because we'll be taking a deeper look at all the ways that training, nutrition, and healthcare can impact every stage of pregnancy. And special for me, because my wife happens to be six months pregnant with our second child. One thing we learned the first time around is that this field is underexplored, underfunded, and usually misunderstood. That's partly because women were historically left out of medical and athletic research. It's also because pregnant women are still excluded. There aren't a lot of mothers willing to enroll in experimental studies, and there are even fewer researchers willing to conduct them. But there's still a lot we can learn from the physicians and trainers who work with pregnancy every day. For this episode, I'll be speaking with three guests who bring different areas of expertise. We'll go deep on how to adjust your nutrition for optimal fertility, the effects of exercise during and after pregnancy, and the many ways inequality in healthcare can impact the health of mother and child for years to come. If you enjoy listening to Trained, here's some good news. You'll find more wellness expertise every day on the Nike Training Club app. A good place to start is our newest program, Advance with Joe Holder. Using minimal equipment or none at all, the Nike Master Trainer guides you through an eight-week fitness journey designed to take your strength and endurance to the next level. Joe's highly technical approach means you'll focus on form during every workout and get more out of every rep. And NTC offers more than workouts. You'll also find in-depth guidance on mindset, recovery, sleep, and nutrition, including dozens of recipes created with your performance in mind. Just download NTC from your app store of choice, and you can start training as soon as the episode's over. Dr. Natalie Crawford is one of the foremost fertility experts working today, but she's also something of an educator at large. On As a Woman, her own wide-ranging podcast, she helps people understand the science behind conception and how to tune their nutrition and lifestyle for fertility and early pregnancy. When I spoke with her, we started out, as you'd expect, at the very beginning. My wife and I, we have a two-year-old, but we're, we're pregnant with our second the little girl, which she's due in uh, February. Congrats. Yeah, thanks so much. We're so excited. One thing I want to make sure we cover is conception and nutrition. So what foods do you recommend for people trying to get pregnant? Really what's good for your uterus and ovaries is what's good for the rest of your cells and your tissue. So these aren't mind-blowing things. Plant-based eating, you know, really high in fruits and vegetables. Studies have shown that for every serving of protein that you replace with a vegetable source over an animal source— increases the odds of conceiving in that cycle. And I use that data to really talk mm. to patients because when you think of this standard American diet, right, very oftentimes vegetables and fruits are an afterthought for a lot of people. And so by really making them the star of your meals and by limiting down your meat servings, that can help a lot. We also know when you look at meat, everything is not equal. So you can have meats that have a lot of nutrients in them. So fish is a good example. But people can really overdo fish because fish contain mercury. And the more fish you eat, you can get a lot of mercury. And that actually can be really bad developmentally for a baby. So if you like fish, good. Three servings a week is what I tell women is a safe level where you don't have to worry about 
What type of fish is this? What's the mercury level of this fish? So we really try to limit foods that are inflammatory. So processed meats, you know, sugars, especially artificial sugars and things like that. Those things are not good on the whole for almost everybody. So I love to talk to my mm-hmm. patients about this, and everybody's a little bit different who's listening. But for the whole, really focusing on those fruits, vegetables, whole grain carbs, that's like the diet, you know, mecca as far as when it comes to how are you going to give your reproductive cells the nutrients that they need to split and divide and become a living being. For women who do experience nausea in the first trimester, what are some tips that you have for them that don't want to eat anything and don't feel hungry at all? And, you know, knowing that they have to meet some baseline level of nutrition to be able to support them and the baby. What tips do you have for people who who experience that? So number one, you don't need actually very many calories in the very early stages of pregnancy. That doesn't mean you shouldn't eat or you should try to restrict, but it should alleviate some worry. What happens is when your stomach is empty and there's increased stomach acid, all of these sensitivities tend to be worse than when there's a little bit in. So whether it's like a little bit of crackers or a little hard candy or something you can take before you even kind of really get out of bed, that can often help. And sometimes it's just having something to Mm. suck on. You know, don't feel like, oh gosh, I've got to eat spinach. My baby needs the spinach. At that point, if you're just going to make yourself sick, it's fine. Eat what you can. Mm -hmm. So shifting gears to exercise in relation to fertility, is there any benefit to starting exercise if you aren't already currently active? There is. So for a couple different reasons, definitely we know that exercise is a great form of stress relief. That can be extremely helpful because stress can impair how your brain functions and how you ovulate. So not only does exercise help with stress, it helps prepare you for pregnancy. Studies have shown that women who enter into pregnancy in better cardiac shape, so you're going to tolerate the physical changes of pregnancy, and you have lower risks in your pregnancy. So a lower risk of gestational diabetes, which is diabetes of pregnancy, a lower risk of preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure of pregnancy, lower risks of preterm birth, C-section, and faster recovery. So it's better for both mom and baby if you're entering into that journey in better shape. It's even been shown if you haven't worked out and now suddenly you're pregnant, that's a great time to start. The American College of OBGYN recommends 30 minutes of physical activity, five days a week. And so starting that Mm -hmm. even when you're pregnant is going to help put you in the best place and reduce the risks for that pregnancy. Well, you brought up a great point, which is stress. Outside of exercise, what are some other stress management tools you recommend to patients of yours? So I want to start by saying I never want people to be Mm. stressed about being stressed, but certainly acupuncture can be helpful. Journaling, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, exercise, therapy, you know, having somebody to go and to talk to and offload some of those internal feelings, that can be really Mm -hmm. helpful. And we can't, you know, talk about stress without talking about eliminating the bad behaviors that we try to combat stress with that actually make it worse for us. So specifically alcohol use all the time, lack of sleep because you're trying to get other things done. Those things are just Mm -hmm. chronically stressing our body even more. And like you said, Ryan, we're never getting that chance to reset and let our bodies heal. It's normal to have ebbs and flows. You're going to be running from a bear or you're not going to be running from a bear. But if you're running from a bear every day, all the time, your body's not going to think it's a good place to get pregnant. And that's the analogy I use to patients all the time. It has been shown time after time again that one 
women and men who struggle with infertility have higher levels of depression and anxiety and that those levels aren't resolved upon a pregnancy, right? Because it's kind of been ingrained in us. And then we're worrying about other things that can go wrong. And sometimes things do go wrong in pregnancies. And so really Mm -hmm. trying to encourage and support, you know, those women and men who are going through fertility or conception or loss or whatever struggle it is to say, prioritize yourself. It's okay to do that. It's okay to take time and money on your mental health. 100% aligned with you on that. What role does sleep and recovery play in your approach, specifically when it comes to conceiving? You know, what's good for your body is good for your body. So getting good sleep and recovering, those are important off times for your brain. And most people don't think about their brain when it comes to reproduction. You think about, I'm ovulating for my ovaries and I need an embryo to implant in the uterus and we need good sperm. But for both of these things, to get eggs to be released and to have sperm produced requires your brain to do its job. And the brain's job is, you know, it's a sounding board. It is interpreting signals and it's releasing other signals based on what it hears. So you need to let it rest at some time Otherwise, it is not going to be responsive the way it needs to. It's not going to send signals out the way it needs to. I always try to encourage people, you know, to try to really carve out the time to get sleep. And I know that's hard. We see a lot of professional people who are starting their family journeys maybe a little bit later than they'd love to, but they have these high stakes careers. They just don't feel like they have the time for it. And I think at some point we have to look at our life, you know, over the whole gamut and say, are we taking care of ourselves and are we prioritizing the things that are really our priorities? Getting sleep, taking vitamins, eating good foods. I, I know it's not necessarily easy for everybody, but there's a lot harder things we go through than trying to take care of our body. It really doesn't ask that much of us. What are the common misconceptions that you would most like to dispel? When it comes to fertility, the number one factor that's going to dictate your success, meaning your chance of a live birth, is how old you are when you're trying to get pregnant. And that's because, you know, your eggs sit in a stage of meiosis, which is cell division, and they don't divide until you ovulate when you're trying to get pregnant. So if you're 20, they've been sitting in a stage for 20 years. And if you're 40, they've been sitting there for 40 years. And what we see is after the age 35, women start to have eggs that are genetically abnormal more than they are normal, no matter how healthy they are. Yes, your lifestyle and the things you can do can make it worse or better, right? If you smoke cigarettes and you booze it up all the time and you eat ding-dongs, then you're going to have abnormal cells even more because you don't give those eggs the proteins they need to divide even when they can. And so the general rule is that if you've been trying to get pregnant for six months or more and you're over the age of 35, you should come see me, a fertility specialist. And if you're age 40 and you want to try to get pregnant, you should consider seeing a fertility specialist immediately so we can make sure that there are not other problems or barriers because you don't really have time to waste in this journey. And I will see 44-year-old marathon runners and they're vegan and they're, you know, in great, great shape. And they have just been convinced that it was okay to keep waiting because they were so healthy. And that conception Mm. is just not true. We can't overcome age with good behavior. It can help, but we can't overcome it. Is there any other one that stands out? Yeah, I think, you know, one is that there's a, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, keto diet or these other, you know, fad type of diets over, you know, eating 
whole natural foods. And I always think that, you know, when there's a Mm -hmm. diet of any type that's trying to exclude, you know, apples that are grown on trees and these foods that have, you know, high vitamin, nutrient, fiber contents, you really need to think twice about it. When you're a pregnant woman, there's something called epigenetics. And what this means is that the things you do to your body change the genetic code of your child. What I like to think of it is your child is going to inherit half its genes from mom and half its genes from dad. And the environment of mom during pregnancy is going to determine which genes are turned on and turned off. And so certain behaviors are going to predispose your child to diabetes and heart disease and obesity and other factors. Similarly, they can impact the other things. And we're really concerned about what being in a constant state of ketosis, which in general is a starvation-like state to the brain and to the body, what that does to a pregnancy. Keto diet gets a lot of push in the fertility world for women who have PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome or for women Mm. who need a rapid weight loss because perhaps they're overweight and that's inhibiting their ability to get pregnant. And so we see a lot of women or a lot of people advocating for the keto diet, but we really do not love the keto diet in pregnancy. Well, is there any evidence to support that yet? Or is that just kind of like they think it does? It was really tough to study nutrition in general, right? And it's really hard to study nutrition in pregnancy because I can't go randomize a bunch of pregnant women to you do this thing and you do that thing. And that that makes it tough for us. That doesn't mean there's things that are kind of trending that way or observational data that's suspicious. And I always think when you're dealing in the pregnancy zone— and it's hard to study certain things, you have to look at the fringe evidence and just interpret it with caution. Um, but that's one thing I find, at least on the social media space, I see a lot of people really promoting, you know, keto diet the whole time. And that's always makes us a yeah. little bit nervous. You know, when we think about our patients in ketosis, we don't like what those changes are doing at the placental level. What are some questions that you think all women should ask their doctor before pregnancy? So I think all women should know if their periods are normal, when is the best time to get pregnant, and what are their chances of getting pregnant per month? And so if you are thinking, hey, I want to get pregnant, do I even have the baseline? Because I will see women, and it breaks my heart, try to get pregnant for years, but they have super irregular periods, and your period is a vital sign. So if you're not having periods, you're not ovulating. I also, again, think that you need to know what are my chances of getting pregnant just based on my age? What is, what's my baseline rate? And if it's a number that doesn't sound really favorable to you, then we want to make sure that we are not missing other parts of the thing. Some of the patients that have the hardest time in the fertility zone are those who could have gotten to a place faster, meaning, oh, my partner has really poor sperm counts, but we didn't know that until I'd been trying to get pregnant for two years. Or, oh, my fallopian tubes are blocked from that surgery I had, but I didn't know that. And we've been trying for a year. So I think getting an evaluation early is never a bad thing because you can't make decisions about data you don't know. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, this the conversation has been so informative. I'm really excited to share this with my wife and have her listen to it. And I know a lot of people listening will get so much out of it. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Once an expert like Dr. Crawford has helped you start a pregnancy in your best possible health, where do you go from there? Especially when training or sports has been a big part of your life. You might turn to someone who specializes in helping you stay in your best possible health through every trimester. Enter trainer Jane Wake. Drawing on 27 years of experience in the field and a master's in sports science, she helps clients around the world shake off some straight-up Victorian misconceptions about exercise and pregnancy. I called her up to learn everything I could about the benefits and guardrails of training for two. Hey, Jane. Thanks so much for coming on the show. 
I just want to jump right in. Can you talk to me about pregnancy and fitness? And what do we know for sure? Physiologically, what a woman goes through in pregnancy is just incredible. She's so strong because she's doing this incredible thing. She's making a baby. So when you add exercise into the mix, it becomes really fascinating. A woman who moves during pregnancy, we know there's all sorts of research to show that. She has shorter labour, she recovers more quickly from birth, she's less likely to suffer from pains and discomforts and lots of kind of pregnancy kind of ailments. There is not nearly enough research to tell us specifically what type of exercise is the best, but this is what I've been spending the last 16 years doing. We do now know that core training is absolutely essential and strength training is so aligned to women in pregnancy because when you're pregnant, you're being challenged. Your center of gravity is shifting. The hormones are affecting your stability and your flexibility and your tendons and your ligaments and your muscles are being changed. But rather than thinking of them as a negative, actually you can turn them into a positive and you can train to work with that in the same way an athlete would train. Absolutely. And it's something I'm, I've been personally interested, invested in. My wife is currently pregnant. Um, we're, oh, we're six months fantastic. pregnant. Yeah. With our second child, we're having a little baby girl. It's similar to other aspects of wellness where you don't know who to believe. There's so much noise. There's so much of like, you could read an article on this core training is, is the best to do. And then another article that says like, actually don't do core training. And you're like, well, who, who, you know, who do I believe and what do we believe? So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what ways the experiences of pregnancy and childbirth can impact a woman's fitness and training routine? Yeah, sure. The hormones, progesterone and estrogen are really key. So the, the minute you are pregnant, these hormones start to rise in the same way in your menstrual cycle, these hormones rise. But in pregnancy, the rise is unbelievable. It's not fourfold sixfold, tenfold. It's more than. That's why women feel so sick, particularly in that first first trimester. That's progesterone. Mm -hmm. And actually it, it is the progesterone and estrogen that's also affecting your ligaments. We don't have any research on this in pregnancy, but we do have lots and lots of research on progesterone and estrogen in, in how it affects athletes. So we know, for example, that ACL injuries are often associated with estrogen in that rise in, in your menstrual cycle. So a lot of women get um, ACL injuries during that peak in that rise of estrogen during the monthly cycle. So there is, you know, a direct correlation here. There are some positives to that. Some people who have very kind of tight issues, they have restriction, often they find the hormones because they relax tight areas of the body that injuries disappear, you know, so it can work both ways. Well, every pregnancy is different too, right? Absolutely. When it comes to the rules and regulations in exercise and pregnancy, it's so individual. And this is why you can see one athlete doing incredible things physically during pregnancy and another person can't. And this is why we should never compare one person to another or one pregnancy to another. So estrogen, we know, actually has a muscle building effect. Estradiol helps us to build muscle. So women, it's not, it's not necessarily that a woman in pregnancy, she can't up her training. Absolutely, she can. And in fact, we encourage women who haven't trained before to start training in pregnancy. And actually, that's really important. And then what tends to happen is about week 21, 22, 23, when your body shape starts to change and your center of gravity starts to change, that's when a lot of women really start to feel it. And this is where core training is essential. The pelvic floor through to the diaphragm muscles are being massively affected. Your rib cage is shifting. Your organs are literally being shifted up to make space for the baby. What this does is it completely affects your core and the way your core muscles work. But it's not just the pelvis, it's the feet. Your feet are changing dramatically. You have more joints in your feet than in any other part of your body. And this is why a lot of women get very flat-footed in pregnancy. Yeah, my wife's shoe size went up a half a size. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that often happens. So we need to be doing exercises to counteract that. And just that one piece of knowledge is absolutely key, particularly if you want to train and you want to be able to get back into your training post postnatally as well. Just knowing that if you do some exercises on your feet, that's going to really, really, really help you. The other major cardiovascular respiratory issues to think about is huge. So when you're pregnant, you have up to 50% more blood flowing around your body. So your heart is pumping all that blood around your body, that extra blood. And this is how you're making a baby. So your heart is going to be working harder. So your respiratory system is going to be already going to be elevated. It's already going to be working harder. There's not enough research, but we do know that, for example, 30 minutes of training, even if you're going into vigorous levels of activity, it's a positive for both you and the baby. And the lovely thing that we now know as well is that it's like you're training with your baby. So your baby is getting the effects of your training as well. Can we click in a little bit on on core training specifically? What are some of the core exercises that you recommend? And would you mind just sharing like how that progresses from the first trimester through the third? In the first trimester, you can pretty much carry on with any core training that you've been doing. But what you need to do is have the right focus on the deep core. So a lot of people think about just core muscles pulling in, pulling in, pulling in. So plank type exercises and I would encourage people to do more moving exercises where you're conscious of your breath I like a lot of um, functional movements where you're squatting and you're lunging and you're moving you're rotating you're doing all those movements whilst being conscious of using your core once you you leave the first trimester and the muscles tend to be more challenged and the hormones are ramping up you want to be careful of downward pressure on the pelvic floor you can do lots of four-point kneeling type exercises on your hands and knees doing things like planks but then reverting to to the knees rather than to the feet so that you know that you can still feel and draw in through your core. The more pregnant you get, the less you're going to do those type of exercises. So you modify them. I'm a big believer in big movements and there's no reason why you can't continue to move big in pregnancy. So what are a few fundamental exercises that every woman should focus on during pregnancy? The reason why I like to squat and lift and lunge and rotate with and and do compound movements where you're moving all together Mm -hmm. is because it gives you that connection from your foot to your head. If you think of the pelvic floor like a hammock that runs from your coccyx at the back to your pubic bone at the front, it's supporting the vital organs. So you've got your bowel at the the back, you've got your uterus in women in the middle, obviously not in men, and then you've got your bladder at the front and and the uterus kind of sits over the top of the bladder. So the more pregnant you get, that's pushing down on your bladder, which is why women often feel like they want to go to the loo all the time. Um, And that's then pushing down on your pelvic floor. So you've got all this extra load and stress on on the pelvic floor. So with the expanding belly um, and also often expanding um, breasts as well, I mean, that's something to take into consideration. Um, uh, You tend to get rounded shoulders. So our Mm. our postural alignment gets completely thrown in in pregnancy. And, And one of the really important things to do here is to engage the pelvic floor from the back so to put it bluntly that's that stop the wind at the back feeling yep stopping (laughs) the poop from the back so you're lifting up from the back if you lift up from the back you literally can feel your spine align and then you lift up from the back of the pelvic floor into the belly and in and and then you feel the belly button coming in so it's literally from your tailbone to your belly button and it's like this scoop up and i i say imagine there's a little skier on the inside of your tailbone and they're skiing off the end of your tailbone and coming up and into your belly now when you also connect that from your foot it's unbelievable the extra strength that you feel. So the core of the foot 
is to, to do an exercise called short foot. And you press through the inside of the ball of the foot and you imagine kind of just drawing the arches of the foot up. So if you draw the arches of the feet up, then you do the scoop up from the back of the pelvic floor. Your squats, your lunges are connected to your core from your foot to your pelvic floor and into your abdominal area. This is for every athlete. This will make yeah. you much stronger. I do tons of short foot exercises with the athletes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's vital. I also love thinking about the tongue. So if you get the tip of your tongue, you place it on the ridge at the top of the roof of your mouth. You can't talk and do this, but if you're not talking, you can do it. So you take the tip of your tongue and you spread it out on the roof of the mouth and you just allow the chin to come in and feel length of the back of the neck. You immediately sit your head in the right position as well. So if you think from the short foot exercise, pressing down through the inside of the ball of the foot and drawing the arches of the feet up, all the way up to your tongue and you connect from the pelvic floor as well, you feel strength. And that's the most important thing I can say to any pregnant woman. It's to have that toe to tongue, that foot to head connection through the core, lifting through the pelvic floor and being conscious of your breath. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I, and it's something, again, it's like, it's all about that kinematic sequence or the chain and yeah. making sure that things are working together in the right way. It can be super beneficial. Oh, absolutely. And you want to work your glutes in pregnancy because once you have your baby, you are forced to rest, yeah? Which is a good thing because women need to rest postnatally. And you're going to be spending a lot of time sitting, feeding your baby, and mm -hmm. you're going to lose your glutes, yeah? They're going to go, <laughs> right? So in pregnancy, <laughs> you need to work your glutes as much as you possibly can so that right up to that week 40 41 whenever you have your baby you know keep working those glutes because you're not going to be able to work them for quite some time afterwards <laughs> that's funny what are like the biggest myths that you hear you just like roll your eyes and you can't stand that they're still kind of like floating around out there about pregnancy and, and as it relates to like health and wellness and fitness I, I think the biggest one is that you can't start training in in pregnancy mm. or you can't up your training you know it's that idea oh you've got to you've got to take it take it slow now you can do progressive training you can load the body you can still do that that's absolutely fine you just have to take into consideration that your body is already loaded that's the first thing the other one is heart rate monitoring it, it doesn't work your heart rate is already elevated so in pregnancy your heart rate your heart is already working harder so don't use heart rate monitoring your zones are changing yeah your zones are changing it's about listening to your body and that's really important i couldn't agree more my w wife and i were talking about this as well is is that one of the things that's cool about training and exercise when you think about it for example if you're doing a set of squats like eight squats with some weight and you're going through that set and towards the eighth rep it becomes really difficult and you're pushing through and it's kind of mind over matter and you're, you're getting yourself through it, you're talking yourself through it and you get through it and you rack the weight and that sense of relief you have was actually exactly what we did for each contraction while we were giving birth. It was like the same exact kind of concept. It's like your body is struggling. It's trying to get through this. You're talking yourself through it. You're motivating yourself. You're having positive self-talk and then you get a release and a, and a kind of a rest period. And then the next one comes along and we kind of talked about it, it was like sets and reps of a training session or she was a track and field athlete. So we talked about it, you know, being her, like her running training, tons of correlation. Absolutely. You know, each contraction is like a hill you've got to climb, but you know, <laughs> yeah. you're going to come down the other side. But it, but the other psychological aspect to think of is each time you go up and over that hill, you know, that's one less hill to go over. No it's giving it that kind of mentality. I really encourage women to do that. And tra training is a, is a great analogy for it. Talking specifically about exercise and, and, and recovery, what, what advice do you give for women in terms of whether they have a vaginal birth or, or cesarean section, when they can start to int reintroduce exercise and training into their life from there? 
Yeah. So essentially you, you, you want the body to heal and that means rest and recovery. And every woman is different. And I know some women will feel they can do a lot more. So you can go out and walk, just do natural things that you would be doing with your baby. Um, and you can start to move a little bit more. And some women do feel that they can do a hell of a lot more, but I'll give you my own, own experience, which is one of the reasons why I now do what, what I do. My first pregnancy, I was running up to around seven, seven months. And then I did stop because it became uncomfortable. I had a very quick birth, but I think because it was so quick, it was kind of fast and quite brutal, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for want of a better word. And then I went back into run training. I was a, a marathon coach at the time and I went back into training. I had several clients. I was literally uh, running around as a coach as well as running marathon training in between breastfeeding my baby. I mean, I literally on the London wow. Marathon was stopping to feed my baby and then carrying on. And throughout that time, I damaged my pelvic floor because I, I didn't stop. I thought I was invincible and I was like, I've done all this training and pregnancy, I'm going to be fine. But I, I, I wasn't because I didn't think about working from the inside first. And I know every woman out there who trains, you just want to get back in the gym. You just want to get back to your training. But you have to be patient with yourself. You have to give your body the time to heal. And then you have to start from the inside. And that's what we've talked about already, which is that from foot to tongue, that deep core connection, Mm -hmm. working on those deep core muscles, and then slowly bringing everything back in. There are pelvic health physiotherapists, specialists who can really help you. And I would really advise women to go and see a pelvic health physiotherapist if you're finding you've got incontinence issues because you really need to help that pelvic floor and and work on your deep core strength. Yeah. What are some of the things you recommend for people who experience diastasis and, and how to kind of approach it during postpartum? The first thing is it's completely normal. In fact, 100% of women will have a diastasis. There will have to be some movement in the abdominal wall. So what happens is the rectus muscle parts and the fascia in between, which is the linear alba in between, literally um, that's where it, it moves. The fascia widens, not the muscle itself. The muscle doesn't get affected, but the fascia widens. All right. So that's the first thing is do not worry about it if you have a diastasis. It will naturally start to come back in. However, some diastasis stays wide. Okay, it will come in a certain way and then it stays and you've still got this gap. Now, we used to be really obsessed with getting the gap in. And it was like, oh, if you've got a wider than two finger width gap in your abdominals, then, oh, you know, that's all you, you know, you've got to do certain exercises. And it's like, do not worry about the gap. Worry about the integrity of the fascia in between. How do you do that? Like any muscle with progressive load. So you start off very, very, very gently and you start to introduce your core training, but from just those pelvic floor lifts to begin with, where you're just doing with very, very low load, but gradually building the load in and doing all of your regular core exercises. But you've got to do it feeling the pelvic floor lift. You've got to actually start to build up. Like with any strength training, you need to gradually increase the load. You just don't want to take it up there too quickly. Perfect. Well, Jane, thanks so much. I mean, your passion and your expertise is obvious and and it was great talking to you. So thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. I really enjoyed it. The importance of exercise that Jane Wake covered isn't the only issue that could use a loudspeaker. Issues like mental health and inequality in medical care aren't a big part of most obstetricians' playbooks. But Dr. Christina Ketchy isn't most obstetricians. Besides helping hundreds of women stay healthy and safe through pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, she's a tireless activist who's been helping to shine a light on who gets top-notch care and who doesn't. I gave Dr. Akechi a call to learn about what makes for a healthy, happy pregnancy, 
how racism and sexism can stand in the way, and what we can all do about it. So, Dr. Ketchy, thank you so much for joining us. To start off, I want to focus on some of the myths that surround pregnancy. What would you say is the number one pregnancy falsehood you would like to clear the air on? One of the important myths to dispel is whether sort of a normal, general, healthy lifestyle would impact on pregnancy. And what I mean by that is miscarriage specifically. For women and their partners who are unfortunate to experience a miscarriage, which we know happens in approximately one in every four pregnancies. Yeah, which is, which is so much higher than I, I ever would have thought it was. And learning that number was staggering. Absolutely. Part of that is because there is just a lot of taboo and wrongly placed shame when it does happen. It's an yeah. extremely painful process and experience for anybody who's ever suffered that before. But what we do know is that most of the miscarriages occur because the chromosomes, which are the proteins around which our DNA are wrapped, they should arrange themselves in a particular order. And if they don't, if there are too many or sometimes too less, the pregnancy will stop developing normally before 12 weeks. So this has nothing to do with having that one cup of coffee or that one glass of wine and before you knew that you were pregnant or going to the gym. And this is a question that I'm commonly asked when we have diagnosed a miscarriage. And for me, it's very, very important to just reassure women that this was not their fault or anything that they have done. I know when we heard from our doctor that it's the body's way of recognizing that there's an issue with the pregnancy. And I think in a way it can help you process that, it, which is what leads me to, to my next question for you. I'm surprised at how little mental health support there is during pregnancy for women. Mm. How important is that for people to recognize that you're going through a massive amount of changes? What do you recommend for people when it comes to mental health going through pregnancy? I am passionate about mental health throughout our life course. So whether you're pregnant or not, and in a way we've almost been asleep to just how important our mental health and mental well-being is, again, in disease and being able to combat disease and living our best healthy lives and not least during pregnancy. Now, of course, there'll be a difference between the UK and the US approach. The same way, you know, in the US, you all have perfect teeth and, and in the UK, you know, we're a bit sort of there <laughs> about it. Now in the UK, we do have focus on perinatal mental support. We tend to focus it on women that have been identified as having an acute need. So maybe because they have some mental health needs identified in the past or acutely during the pregnancy. But this is something that really should be extended to everybody. Do you have hormonal changes that will affect the way you feel, the way you may react to certain circumstances? And so I think the first thing is that there has to be better recognition of this reality so that we can normalize it rather than it being seen as an issue that means a woman is not coping because this is not yeah. necessarily the case. Yeah. First of all, it requires recognition and then um, working to provide a good social support around that woman, helping her to understand the changes that she could expect to feel during the pregnancy. You know, normally in the first and second trimester, they feel fine. They feel that, you know, they can do whatever they want to do. When we get to the third trimester, we feel more tired. Sometimes we can feel frustrated that we're not able to run down to the shops as quickly as we wanted to, that we're not able to maybe contribute to work as much as we wanted to. And this can all contribute to feelings of 
am I being the best pregnant mother that I could be? Which is unfair pressure that women can put on themselves. And then, of course, in the postnatal period, it is well known that the pregnancy high, driven by those hormones, they fall quite rapidly after the baby is born. And this contributes to what is commonly known as the pregnancy blues and in very rare circumstances, um, pregnancy psychosis. So I always like to actually inform my women as to what to expect, particularly in the postnatal period. Because when you're feeling very tearful, when you're trying to bond with your newborn baby, and actually your body's just starting that very slow, long journey to going back to what it was pre-pregnancy, it can all feel a bit too much. But I find that where we have adequately counseled women appropriately before, they're better able to withstand the sort of waves of emotions that will occur. Is there any tips or tools that you give your patients when it comes to mental health that are free, that everyone has access to? Actually, exercise. Everybody should get out every day. Going for a walk constitutes exercise. Going for a brisk walk for 30 minutes, I think is extremely important. And we do know that sunlight and vitamin D plays a huge role in our mood. This is particularly important as we go into winter. And um, for those of us that um, live in areas where we have a reduction in sunlight during the winter months, it's, it's even more important. And most women will struggle. It is absolutely normal. I mean, as I said, you have a child that is dependent on you to be fed and clothed and kept warm 24-7. And that is an arduous task. I think it's important for all of us to really dispel, again, some of these very rigid narratives we have around childbirth and motherhood. This idea that you deliver a baby and then you fall in love with it straight away and it's all so wonderful. Well, actually, for many women, they don't feel that at all. Some women have had a traumatic delivery. Um, some women, for example, deliver by cesarean section under general anesthetic when they're asleep during the operation. And that can really affect how they bond with that child. And also, you know what, sometimes you just don't feel anything at all because you're tired and exhausted. And all of these different scenarios are normal. So this need to want to fit in into a narrative that has been fed down to us over the generations, I think it's very, very important that we push that back and we create a journey which is normal for ourselves. It is incredibly important to open the conversation around the inequality that exists in every part of healthcare. And I know it's your passion and a big part of your purpose to bring this to light. And I want to talk about it because when you start to look into it and as data comes out, the inescapable disparity in health outcomes, obviously for BIPOC communities is, like I said, inescapable. We can't ignore it. For people who don't know and have not done some of the research yet, would you mind talking a little bit about what that data shows and how, how obvious it is and what steps we can start to take to recognize the inequality and, and what us as individuals can maybe start to do about it? Sure. Essentially, this is something that for your American audience, I'm sure they know all too well, which is the disparity in maternal mortality outcomes between women of different races. And for us in the UK, I think for a long time, we felt that maybe this was something that was a bigger affliction for our American cousins and didn't really affect us. Of course, this couldn't be further from the truth. So in the UK, we are lucky that maternal mortality is thankfully extremely low. However, when we look at those statistics and peel that apart, we find that there is a huge disparity 
in who dies and who doesn't. And essentially, we look at the maternal mortality statistics and we produce a triennial report. And in the last report around 2017, we found that black women were five times more likely to die in pregnancy or in the weeks after pregnancy compared to white women. And then this is a huge disparity. We don't necessarily see this to the same degree within women from different races. So Asian women, which for us in the UK, we're talking about South Asian women, they have a greater disparity as well, but it's twice compared to white women. For Chinese women, actually, it's comparable. So there is something quite specific amongst women who are identified as being black. We know that the reasons around this are complicated and not very well understood. We know, for example, that Black and Asian women are more likely to have health conditions that puts them at greater risk of dying in pregnancy, such as gestational diabetes, hypertension in pregnancy, and cardiovascular disease. We know that, of course, when we're looking at migrant or immigrant populations, they tend to be from Black and Asian backgrounds. And as such, language barriers and access to antenatal services Mm. can be an issue. But remember, in the UK, we have a national health service that is free at the point of entry. But what we do know is that even when we remove and adjust for previous or pre-existing medical conditions and language and social class, if we look at black women who are middle class, who are born in the UK, such as myself, who do not have pre-existing medical health conditions, we still are at greater risk of dying. And so for us, one of the more difficult conversations for us to have in the UK is where unconscious bias, conscious bias and racism plays a part in this. And and very much institutional racism, racism within healthcare, conversations that I think for you all in America, you've been having just that little bit longer than we have, that we are really starting to have these honest conversations and more importantly, Mm. talk about how we can tackle it. And I would highly suggest anyone that's listening, you wrote a beautiful article back in June that I read actually before I knew I was going to interview you. Um, And I thought you did an incredible job illustrating what are some steps you think that we could take to start to open this conversation up and make it much more than a conversation, but actually start to address the issues. Um, And one of which, which was so surprising to me, is that the data and the statistics that you're talking about, we don't talk about this in medical school. Doctors are not trained on this inequality and disparity when they're going through their education process to learn about this. Can you talk about why you believe that to be the case? I mean, let's be honest. Race is what underpins many of our societies, um, whether we care to admit it or not. We live in a racialized society. And I think it's important for us to peel away race versus ethnicity, because race very much is a social construct. It doesn't mean anything. And the reason why I think it's important for us to really understand that is that within medicine, we when we're looking at race, it tends to be when we're talking about poorer outcomes for certain groups that we then tend to rationalize by way of their race, as if their race gives them some sort of genetic condition that puts them at greater risk, mm-hmm. which is the nonsense. Because right. in reality, if we understand how the definition of race comes about, 
any scientist or anybody will then realize that there isn't some genetic link that links every single black person across the world. There's nothing to say that I have genetic commonalities, bearing in mind that my parents are Nigerian with somebody who is Jamaican, for example, or a black person from South America. The only thing that joins us is the degree of melanin in our skin. So actually, when we're talking about race, what we're talking about is how our societies then divide people according to their color of their skin and how that plays out by educational opportunities, by job opportunities, and then the downstream effects of that. So if you don't have a good education, you're less likely to have a job that gives you the purchasing power to eat well, for example, to join a gym, to then be in the best possible health so that when you are pregnant, you are well. So for me, if we're talking about racial disparities in maternity, it's almost too late. That woman already potentially has those pre-existing health conditions that may have been exacerbated by the race that has been given to her by society. Whereas if we really focus on reducing the race gap, so to speak, from the time that a child is born, because we know that these disparities start from birth, then we are more likely to have a healthy black woman at such, meaning that her risk of mortality during pregnancy or thereafter is greatly reduced. I love there's a quote uh, by Ibram Kendi that says, you know, just because you didn't invent racism doesn't mean you're not a consumer of it. And I think just recognizing and accepting that is, is a very important first step. And those three levels that you had talked about in that article of first understanding the history of racism is number one, just going back and understanding the history. Second, you talked about how imperative it is to understand that the racial equality education is not an exercise to satisfy you know, mandatory training requirements, but should be a core skill central to delivery of equal, safe and excellent care. And then last, you, you talked about challenging closed mindsets and limited discourse. I think that's one area for me that I think is massively important. Based on the realities of where we are today in terms of racial inequity, if you were advising a woman from BAME or BIPOC community receiving care that's pregnant, based on what we know about maternal mortality rates, would you advise that they find someone who looks like them to give them care? So we're all human beings. And I, I believe... I believe in the goodness of, of all of us, to be honest. I do not believe that just because I'm black, I'm, I'm always the best placed person to um, look after a black person necessarily, you know, or because I'm a female. I think it's about choice. I think it's about options. I also push against a idea that there is a common experience or common narrative because somebody shares the same skin color. Yeah. We all are individuals at the end of the day. And I think it's important that we hold on to that. Saying that, I do understand the difficulties of living in a racialized society as a racialized woman. And I think that understanding can really help in certain circumstances. So really what I call for is that when we're trying to address inequalities and in outcomes, that that can only be addressed when we have diversity in leadership and diversity in our clinicians. So that when a woman comes in, she has the choice to be able to pick the person that she feels will best suit her needs. Beautifully said. What are some of the downstream effects that we, we see from this inequality? Like how can it affect the physical, mental, and economic health of the parent and the child? Well, it's absolutely important. We know that poor journeys through pregnancy, because for example, a woman has pre-existing health conditions, 
impact on the birth of that child, either because they're born of a low birth weight, they don't thrive in the first few months, in the first few years. And we know that children that have problems thriving at the start of their life tend to be sicker children and sicker adults. We know that children that have health challenges tend to perform poorly in school. This then impacts on their job opportunities and so on and so forth. So it then becomes this negative cycle. So having a really healthy mother really impacts strongly on the outcomes of that child from day zero. So it's so important that when we're tackling these issues, as I said, we don't come in at the point of pregnancy. We really come Mm. in at the point of childbirth and follow that child through throughout their lives. Well, Dr. Keiichi, thank you so much for for taking the time. I I really appreciate it. It was an honor to have you. It was a pleasure and good luck with the rest of the pregnancy journey. Thank you so much. We're so excited. (laughs) I appreciate it. You know, it's amazing how setting out to talk about something supposedly so focused like pregnancy and fitness, we end up touching on some of the biggest issues we're facing right now. Racial inequality, access to care, even economic impact. It really underlines for me that women's health is a central issue. It's one of those dominoes that has effects throughout an entire society. It's incredibly important to me personally, and I'm just so glad that I was able to have these conversations today. Since I conducted these interviews, my wife and I have been talking about them pretty nonstop, and I'm sure we'll keep it up through the third and fourth trimesters. And I hope everyone out there gets as much out of it as we do. On our next episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Lori Santos, a psychologist whose trailblazing research asks and answers the question, what really makes us happy? This has been Trained. Talk to you soon. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trained, help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast. That way we can keep making great episodes for you to listen to. And it helps other people find us too. If you've got a question for me or my guests, or a topic you'd like to see covered, email me at trained at nike.com and I'll see what I can do. Thanks for listening to Trained. Just a reminder, always talk with your doctor before starting any training or nutrition program. The information we provide, it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And the individual opinions expressed here are just that, opinions. They shouldn't be taken as fact.